Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, to be honest and to agree with Dave, this, this passage disturbs me too, because uh, it's, it's challenging. It's, um, I think it speaks to uh, not only uh, people in general throughout time, but in a culture like ours where uh, status and uh, our stuff matters more than anything to our culture, this speaks uh, pretty cutting words to how we live our lives in the Western world. But let's see um, how this applies to the rest of the gospel and um, how it should apply to our lives as the Holy Spirit ministers to us. Let's go to prayer and ask God for his blessing. Father, as we um, work through this passage, for many of us, God, it's a very familiar passage. I, I know for me, I, I read it and I understand it and I pass right over it because I don't want some of the stuff to apply directly to me. But Father, we would pray that your spirit would, would do just that, that you would move among us in a powerful way, God, and apply that, which we need to hear to our lives, that you would, you would uh, encourage us, God, if that is where we need to be, that you would convict us, God, that you would bring about that transformative change that only you can bring in our lives. So, Father, we're not here to hear words of wisdom from any man, any uh, buddy in this congregation. We're here to hear from you. And so, God, may uh, all the other voices uh, fade away, and may we hear your Spirit speaking to us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So at this point in the gospel, if you remember, the disciples are really, they're struggling students, are really having a lot of trouble with what Jesus is trying to say about the kingdom of God. He's been overturning their assumptions on what life is supposed to be like and what religion is supposed to be like. He has just overturned their assumptions on what it takes to become a child of God, how, how God accepts people into his kingdom is really different from the mouth of Jesus and what Judaism has been teaching them. Uh, Jesus has just told them that if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you have to be like little children, and all people need to come to Jesus with nothing, with complete dependence on him. No one can earn the kingdom. It's not earned. It's simply received. Uh, the requirement is the same for every person. It's simple, childlike reliance upon Jesus and Jesus alone. It's that easy. And so in the context of that teaching about children, that it's easy to get into the kingdom of, of heaven, just be like a little child. In that context, Jesus comes to this point where this man comes and asks him a question, a man that is the opposite of a young child dependent upon uh, uh, another person, but a man who is self-reliant. So the first point is simply this. This man comes to discover that Jesus is the source of the answer to life's most important question. Uh, there is one question that, that rises above all others, and the only place to get that answer is from Jesus. There is no other place that will adequately or truthfully or correctly give the answer to the question. Verse 17, read that again. As Jesus started on his way, that means he was starting to leave that place and go to another place, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So evidently, this rich young ruler, as Matthew calls him in his gospel, probably had heard Jesus talk and had listened to his sermons and his messages, and he was rather impressed at what he was hearing. But now he hears that Jesus is about to leave. And so his opportunity to talk with Jesus is about to end. And so he runs to Jesus. He was eager to get to him, um, to talk with him about his teachings. And so he was one that was kind of considering, I think, what Jesus had been saying. And, um, and as we know, 
Jesus' teachings were unlike anything that was being taught by any other rabbi. And this man's interest was piqued, and he had remarkable respect for Jesus. How do we know that? Because he ran to him, and he fell down upon his knees before Jesus. Don't think that's worship. That's not what he's doing. He's not worshiping Jesus. That was a, a, a way to respect a rabbi. A lot of rabbis looked for this. If you were a rabbi, you would get maybe a little bow if you were a good rabbi. But if you were a well-respected rabbi... You would fall to your knees as a sign of respect for that man's teaching. So this man comes to Jesus with great respect. So whatever you think about this rich young ruler, because you know how the story ends, whatever you think about him at this point, he certainly came in the right way to Jesus. He came with humility. He was coming for answers to questions that he didn't have, and he was coming to the right person. He was coming to Jesus. He knew that Jesus was the source for the answer to the question that he wanted answer. And so this man cries out to Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, the Jews referred to God as good, but never spoke about people as good, except with qualified sort of comments. Uh, man is good, but he is bad in this way. Man is good, but he needs to repent. Man, we can praise God for the good things man does, but that, that, that qualified statements. But only God is referred to as good in the absolute tense, in the absolute sense. So Jesus' response later on bears us out. He's actually pushing the point. Do you really think I'm good in a qualified sense, like I'm a good person? Or do you, are you claiming to know who I really am, good as in God. So this rich ring ruler is, as far as we know, is awed by Jesus. He wants to get an answer to the question, and he had a very important question to ask him. And this question is one of the most significant in the whole Bible and for all humanity. How do I get eternal life? How do I know God? Remember, eternal life is not living forever. Eternal life is knowing God personally. That's how Jesus defines it in John 17. And so that question is the most significant question in the whole Bible. In fact, I believe it's the most significant question any human being will ever ask. How do I know God? How do I get to uh, the place where I have eternal life living in God's family? And so the question that this man asks by no means is a bad one. He implies he believes eternal life, how, eternal life however, is something you work for. That's the implication of the question, right? What must I do? Right, to inherit eternal life. What, what do I have to do? What are the things that I have to kind of do in my own power so I can get eternal life? All religions in the world, every single religion, whether they're active now in the past or everything in the future, can be categorized under the do or done categories. Am I saved by what I do or am I saved by what another person has done? Right? 99.999% of religions in the world are the do religions. What must I do to be saved? What are the things I have to do? I have to do this. I have to be this good. I have to do these things for means of grace, these sacraments, whatever it is. That's all do religion. Christianity, biblical Christianity, is a done religion. We don't do anything outside of exert faith. And so Christianity is a done religion, a done relationship. Eternal life is not achieved, it is received. Remember the previous passage, you re must receive the kingdom like a little child. So uh, eternal life is based on what Jesus has done for us. So the young ruler not only needed to have both a change of theology, 
but also a change of heart if he was going to inherit eternal life. First, his theology had to be corrected. It's not about what you do. It's something else. And he has to have a change of heart. Both those things have to happen in any human being to become a child of God. You have to have the correct theology. You have to know whether you're trying to do something to inherit eternal life or whether it's done already by Jesus. And you have, your heart has to be turned towards God. And so what Jesus does is masterful. He doesn't argue with the man based on his theology and try to convince him. He turns the argument to where it's supposed to be. Jesus redirects his focus and our focus from self to God. That's what Jesus does. And he says, okay, your, your perspective is all wrong. Let me get your perspective switched because you think it's about you. It's not about you. It's about God. Verse 18, why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. And he probably went like that afterwards, maybe. I don't know. Maybe he did. That's how I like to picture it. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. That's lie. Um, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Okay, and we go like that, and really, and, and I think he, he, he did, and I'll get to that in a second. So Jesus answers this young man's question with a theological question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, why do you call me good, right? It's really not answering this question, but it, is it really answering this question? Why do you call me good? No one is good but one person, God. So Jesus puts the focus back where it's supposed to be on God. And the, see, the young man's starting point was wrong. The young man's starting point was on himself. Like most people, starting point is, right? What must I do? How do I get there? You know, how do I arrange my life to please God, right? How do I please God, um, but also please me? Is there a balance there someplace? You know, it's the scales. You know, am I good enough? What do I have to do? That's where his starting point is. That's what his culture taught him. We can't really blame him. There's no doubt this young man was a good man. He probably was doing everything he was supposed to do by the standards of his day. And he saw in Jesus another good man, a man that was gooder, better than him, right? And he wanted to go to him because you understand full of things. See, I've done all these things. I've, I've done all the outward stuff with my neighbors and my friends. I'm, I'm a really good person. But you know what? I still don't feel like I'm all the way there. You know? So what do I got to There has to be something else I can do. And so he goes to Jesus, and Jesus forces him to look to God for any hope of genuine goodness and eternal life. Your perspective's wrong. Take it off yourself and look to God. God is the only one that can help you in your predicament. You need to recognize that, that it's not about you, it's about God. And so, and furthermore, Jesus here implicitly confronts the young ruler with his evaluation of Jesus, because he says, good teacher, right? So Jesus is kind of banging around this guy's brain. When, when you call me good, are you saying that that's in the absolute sense? Of, are you calling me God? Because if that's what you meant, you're on the right track. But if you're just calling me a, a good person like the rest of humanity, then you can listen to me. You can listen to another good person. You can listen to this good person. You can get a bunch of opinions and go with whatever opinion you want. But if I am in God, if I am good in the absolute sense, then it would be appropriate that whatever comes out of my mouth now, rich young ruler, for you to listen to, to respond to, and to obey. To do anything else is to be disobedient 
to the Creator. And that's really what it comes down to when people listen to Jesus, right? People listen to Jesus and they go, those are really good teachings. And when someone says Jesus has really good teachings, what they're really saying is, is they're really good teachings. Until he teaches something hard, then I'm going to find some other teachings that I like. Because there's an option out there, a bunch of good teachings. I'll do some Buddhist teachings, some Taoist teachings, some Christian teachings, and just, just mix them all in and take the best of all the worlds. And if Jesus is just a good teacher, that's a great option. But if he's good in the absolute sense of the word that he is God, then only his air quotes, opinion matters, because it really isn't opinion, is it? It's truth, right? And so that's what he's asking the guy. Where, where's your source of truth? Again, is it from you? Is it from God? Do you really believe I'm the ultimate source of the answer for your question? And so Jesus doesn't wait for his response to that. He goes on. He, he wants this man to be, think about his whole worldview. You know the commandments, and this man did, and he kind of goes through those six commandments, those six commandments are the last six of the ten, and they address human relationships. You notice he doesn't talk about the first four. He's talking about all the commandments that, that you have to do with how we relate to other people. He didn't talk about the first, second, and third. And so how do you treat others, Jesus is asking. And the man says, you know what, Jesus? I've kept all these commandments. I've done these things. I am outwardly righteous. I am a good person. This young man, I believe, had conducted himself impeccably according to the law. He was outwardly righteous. He had honored it. He had obeyed it. He had tried to follow God. And, and remember, Paul says a similar thing. Paul the apostle was blameless, he said, with respect to the outward demands of the law as taught by the religious teachers of Israel. In Philippians 3, 6, Paul says this, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. I'm perfect. Outwardly, if you look at me, I'm a good Christian. I'm a good Jew. I, I am perfect. You can't, you can't point to me and say, you're, you're, you've defrauded people, or you're covetous, or you've lied. He, he, I've lived a good, righteous life. And if you line me up in a row with a bunch of people, and you say, who's the most righteous? They would point to me. That's what Paul says. And I believe this young man has the same attitude Paul has. I've done all the outward stuff. If you look at me, you would say, that's a good Christian man. That's a good Christian woman. They're good Christians. That's what you'd say. But Jesus is saying, that's not enough. It's not the outward stuff that matters. So this young man, from his bar mitzvah to this day, had worked for God's approval, and his record was spotless as comparative to other people. He was right up there. He was a good guy. If goodness was going to get you into heaven, if goodness was going to get you eternal life, this guy was right there. He was right there. But outward righteousness is not enough. And so what happens? He has the truth now. It's all in his brain. He has to think about it. Three, what is the guy going to do with this information? Our response to truth determines our eternal fate. Just look at that for a second. This is scary. This is also wonderful, right? Our response to the truth that we receive determines our eternity, right? It, 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 it's the most important question of all. What, how we respond to what Jesus says regarding salvation is of utmost importance. Verse 21, Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, 
Go sell everything, everything you have, and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. It's one more do thing, right? Do this, and you'll have eternal life. But the do thing you can't do unless your heart is changed. That's, that's the trick here, right? That's the key. You can't do that. You can't sell everything and trade it for Jesus. You can't give everything up and trade it for Jesus unless your heart has been changed. So verse 21 is one of the most touching and tender verses in the Bible. Here's a guy who's tried very hard to follow God, and Jesus looked at him, and he just loved it. This guy, this guy wants to follow Jesus. This guy wants to know God. He loved him. He had compassion for him. But verse 22, as we'll see later on, is also the most tragic verse in the Bible, too. So the most touching and the most tragic, two verses apart. I think there was a sincerity, there was an earnestness about this man that, he, that moved Jesus' heart. He just saw his heart and said, this guy really wants to follow God. And, and that, that heart reached out to the man. And so Jesus has addressed the six commandments that relate to other people. And Jesus now, in this question, uh, addresses the first commandment. God must be God in our lives. He must be number one. No one and nothing can stand between me and God, otherwise there is no eternal life. The particular demand, by the way, that Jesus puts on the rich young ruler is not a general command for everybody. It doesn't mean that every Christian is supposed to sell their possessions and give to the poor. It's not a general command. It was specific to this young man. But having said that, still not off the hook. It might be specific to you too. So it's not just, it's not general for everybody, but it's not just for this guy and no one else. It could be for you if you have a lot of possessions or something outside of possessions that is before Jesus. You've got to get rid of that before you can follow Jesus. And so... Uh, this, his wealth in this man occupied the place that only God could have in his life. His wealth was his idol. It was his God. He, he may have obeyed, relatively speaking, all the commands that related to human beings, but he did not uh, obey the first and foundational commandment, do not have other gods besides me. And that was the key. And his other God was his wealth, and that was before Jesus, and Jesus said, you get rid of that. If you put me first, then you have eternal life. If you throw it all away and follow me, you have eternal life. Get rid of that idol. You come up short in one crucial area, what will be first in your life? Is it whatever or is it me? And only when you give everything away Will you become a small, vulnerable, dependent child and have the faith that's needed to be saved? Otherwise, your dependence will be on something else always, and you won't have childlike faith. The call to discipleship is a call to radical trust and belief in what Jesus says. It's radical from the, a world, the view of the, of the world. So Jesus challenges us, all of us to put away anything that is an obstacle to following him. You cannot love your stuff supremely and love Jesus supremely. You cannot love your comfort supremely and love Jesus supremely. You cannot love your preferences supremely and love Jesus supremely. You can't love your dreams and your future plans supremely 
and love Jesus supremely. You have to give all that up and adopt the agenda that God has for you, which is much better than your own agenda. And that, that's just the way it is. And you, and you don't see that until you give it up. This man couldn't see beyond his wealth that if he gave it up, he would have much more than he had in that life. Much, much more. But he couldn't see beyond the everyday stuff. And so he didn't believe. And he walked away. Verse 22, at this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. He chose the idol. The, his, faith fell, his face fell meant he was stunned. What do I have to do? No, no, it can't be that. He, he was stunned that he had to give up everything. So gloom and, and sorrow, and he went away grieving because he was not willing to give up an idol and put Jesus first. Gold and riches will remain his God. Unless something happened later on in his life, we don't know. But... Jesus' demand was met with a, no, I refuse to give it all up and follow you. He got the right answer to his question. The answer was truth. He did not give the right response. He had all the truth, all the information he needed. Jesus didn't hold anything back from him. He had the full plan out there, but his response was not the right one. No, therefore, no eternal life. James Edwards, another theologian, says this. This is pretty insightful. A person who leads an exemplary life, who even endears himself to the Son of God, can still be an idolater. I wonder in my life, I wonder in yours, if we live an outwardly holy life, we we're trying to follow Jesus, we're being obedient as much as we can, we know God loves us and cares for us. He's endeared himself to us, but yet, in here, we're still idolaters. We still have something that is in the way of the next step that God wants to bring us to, a place where we can have even more faith than we have now. So this rich young ruler had come to the right person. He came to Jesus. He asked the right question, at least in part, how do I get to eternal life? He received the right Answer, honor God and follow Jesus in complete trust like a little child, but he did not respond correctly. He responded with a no, and he walked away from the only source of eternal life. There is no other way. There was no other place to go. He could ask that question a thousand different places, and he would get the wrong answer. He might follow those answers, follow different pathways, but he'd still be lacking what he really needed in his heart of heart. Right? He needed a change of heart. So kind of a summary, number four. Becoming a child of God is hard, but easy. It's both, right? That makes sense to you? It's hard, but easy. Verse, let me read through verse 23. How did his disciples respond? Those smart guys, those guys, those sharp tacks, how did they respond? Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, because they're probably doing this, right? And, and, uh, and so that he's looking around. How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Disciples were amazed at his words. Why were they amazed? I don't understand. How long have you been with this guy? But Jesus said again, because they're still going, huh? 
Um, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus makes a joke, tries to make it a little bit lighter here. That's actually a Hebrew joke. Everybody go, ha, 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 That's funny, Jesus. Yeah, because, see, camels are big and needles are small. Anyway, so, so the disciples were even more amazed, and they asked each other, who then can be saved? Even these guys are asking the wrong people. They're not asking Jesus. They asked each other, well, who then can be saved, right? They're not asking Jesus. They should be asking Jesus, right? Uh, Jesus looked at them and said, while they're talking to each other, how awkward this is for them. With man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. So Jesus told his disciples, it's really hard for rich people to enter the kingdom of God. It's really hard for people who hang on to things to enter the kingdom of God because they're very unwilling to let them go for whatever reason. And we all have different reasons for hanging on. So Jesus was not condemning rich, riches, by the way, and saying everyone should be poor, we all should live the aesthetic life. The, the point is wealth breeds confidence in yourself. If you're a self-made man, a self-made woman, then you, you tend to think, well, I built this, right? I, I, you know, I, I, I worked hard, and everything I have is what I did. And that's partly true, but you didn't maintain your health. That's up to God, right? You probably might have not got that job unless God arranged some. God's in this whole process, right? So, but when we, when we get blessings from God, there's two responses. We go, thank you, God, for this blessing. How can I use it for your glory? How can I be a good steward of all this stuff? Or we go, man, I'm really good at this stuff. I'm really good. And we, it breeds confidence in ourselves. And when we breed confidence in ourselves, know what that is? It's a very, very addictive, all right? And we, we, we hold on tighter and tighter and tighter. Have you ever noticed the more stuff you have, the more you feel like you're a slave to that stuff, all right? It, it's, it's just very addictive. Um, so the question is not whether you're rich or poor. The question is what's your life priority, all right? And where does your – what, what – uh, where, did you, where do you believe real prosperity uh, lies? Judaism had its own prosperity gospel at this time. Wealth and riches were seen as evidence of God's blessing. That was a common thought, and some of it's from the Bible, but they, again, they misinterpreted what prosperity meant. Prosperity in the Scripture does very rarely, not always, but very rarely does it mean riches. All right, It may, means intimacy with God, uh, which can bring about life blessing. But, but for the Jews, they thought, you know, if you have riches, then God has blessed you. If you're a poor dirt farmer, then God hasn't blessed you. In fact, you might even be cursed by God, because look at me. Look at the fine raiment I wear. I'm blessed by God. And so Jesus is really coming against that cultural norm here. Wealth can build a barrier to the one thing necessary to enter the kingdom, helpless childlike trust in Jesus. You, you, you have to be dependent upon God, not dependent upon anything else. So the 12 were astonished because they've been taught this all their life. If, if you follow the right teacher, right, because Jesus is going to be king. They're thinking this still. Jesus is going to be king, and we're going to be rulers with him, prestige. We're going to be in the in crowd. That's all they're thinking of at this point. And Jesus is saying, no, that has nothing to do with salvation. Salvation is about a change of heart. And so his answer to that question, how can someone be saved? How can any human being in their right mind give up everything to follow you, especially if you keep talking about this cross foolishness? 
Who will do that? And then this verse, with men it's impossible. You can't do it in your own power, but not with God because all things are possible with God. Now, <clears throat> don't take that verse out of confidence. All things are not possible with God. Now, let me, let me tell you what I mean. If I'm on the plane flying and I open the door and all the people start screaming because I just opened the plane door and I go, I'm going to jump out and then do the superhero stand, right? I'm going to hit the ground. All things are possible with God. Unless there's a miracle, and God doesn't do stupid miracles. You know what's going to happen to you? Mushy, right? So the, this verse has a context. The context is it's impossible to give up everything and follow God. It's impossible. They couldn't comprehend that anybody would do that. And Jesus says, it's not possible with you. But God can change your heart. God can transform you from the inside out if you follow me. Salvation is something humans cannot accomplish. We can't. It is impossible. Left to ourselves, we'll never make it into God's kingdom and inherit eternal life. There's no way we can do it. If that's your hope, if you're trying to be a good person, you will fail. You will fail miserably. Comparatively, you might be a great guy or a great gal compared to other people. But you're not comparing yourself to other people. You're comparing yourself to good in the absolute sense, in the perfect sense. Salvation is, has always been, and will always be a divine accomplishment through the perfect atonement and sacrificial death of Jesus. It's always, always. It's done already. It's nothing that we do. It's done already. Done, not do. Done, not do. The pressure is off. All we have to do is just believe what he says. Just believe what he says. Stop doubting. You have the right answers. You may be asking the right questions. Now it's up to your response. What are you going to do? Are you going to give it all up and follow him and find more blessing in life than you ever could imagine? Or are you going to say, no, I like my things. I like my plans. I like my dreams. I like whatever it is. And walk away sad. Entering God's kingdom and receiving eternal life is impossible with human effort. If that was the case, no one would be saved. But Jesus looked upon him and, and loved him. And he looks upon us and he loves us. And he wants us to be saved. All things are possible with God. Anyone can be saved. God wants you to accept Christ as, his, as your Savior. But you have to replace what you have been looking at already as your Savior. It will not save, whatever it is. Only Jesus can. We all have something. It could be things. It could be, again, our dreams and plans. I think dreams and plans keep many people away from God more than stuff, right? It's the, it's the big stuff we want for ourselves. And, 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 and with, again, in God's perspective, the, the biggest dream you have is probably not even on God's agenda. It's probably not. He has bigger dreams for you. His dreams are eternal. Your dreams are probably to, geez, I, I could get to retirement, right? That, that's where dreams go, right? God's dreams go for eternity for us. And so it's a matter of trust. So if you wish to follow him in discipleship, you have to put away your idols. Identify them and put them away. And you won't walk away sad. You'll find joy above all else. That's the promise of God. Let's pray.